Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, Emmy Award-winning producer, social justice advocate, and mindfulness teacher, Kim Tai. The last time I remember being with my friend and former MTV colleague, Kim Tai, we were sitting in a nondescript production trailer outside of the Barclay Center in Brooklyn at the 2014 Video Music Awards. Kim, who at the time managed social media for the channel's biggest shows, and I, who ran MTV News, often found ourselves in those trailers surrounded by banks of computer and broadcast monitors, rapidly cycling through social media for audience reaction to big show moments, say, the Backstreet Boys reuniting or Miley Cyrus twerking on Robin Thicke. It wasn't rocket science, but it was high stakes, high pressure, live television. So when I discovered recently that Kim had left big media to build a community of mindful change makers who believe that personal actions lead to collective liberation, well, I couldn't wait to catch up. Following stints at the Houston Chronicle, MTV, and Discovery, Kim founded Ganesh Space in 2018, seeking a community where she could be her most authentic self on her own healing journey. As a queer Asian woman and proud kid of Vietnamese refugees, Kim helps people find freedom and power within themselves and discover how their breath can change the way they see and show up in the world. In this week's episode, Kim shares her parents' harrowing escape from a barely post-war Vietnam and the impact it had on her upbringing in Houston, Texas, as well as her personal journey from fluorescent-lit New York City boardrooms to the candlelit yoga studio. I can hear you exhaling already. Kim and I pick up where we left off in that cramped, stressful production trailer. It feels like lifetimes ago, to be honest with you, Ben. I think, you know, at that time, I was a different Kim, to be honest with you. Like, I was still Kim, just a different version of me. I think I was very hungry in the best ways. I think fondly back at my time there, I'm sure we share that in similarity. I always used to joke that my very strict mother, MTV was like the party college she never let me go to. And that was kind of like my professional version of that. And I went through some big changes in my life when that was happening in parallel and I went through a divorce and kind of really found my way spiritually or starting to there. Yeah. And then I eventually left MTV and went on to go work at Discovery for a little bit. And I know we would like put on suits at MTV when we weren't really putting on suits compared no, to other places, no. you yeah. know, yeah. and I was really putting on a suit at this other place. I remember like my first month into this new gig, I like, could not stop feeling nauseous. And I was like, oh, it's fine. It's just nerves. I've just been working. You know, at that point, I had been at Viacom for about seven years or so. So I was like, oh, no, it's just like new adaptation. But the more time I spent there, the more I was like, this isn't really aligning 
with where I'm at and what nourishes me and what feeds me. And I remember very strikingly, like being in these day long budget meetings, talking very clinically about numbers and spreadsheets. And you know me, I'm like such a creative at heart. And so even being in that setting felt like, you know, like I was getting twisted in a certain way. It was right when I was going through my yoga teacher training. So I would spend weeks, the whole work week, completely burned out Mm -hmm. and completely in conference rooms with overhead fluorescent light. And And then go and spend the whole weekend on my mat, sweating, crying, being with these other people who are diving really deep into their practice and... I remember going to, you know, they made us like go around the circle, right? To explain, why'd you sign up? Why do you want to be here? And half of the room was like, oh, I want to be a yoga teacher. I want to be like this and that. And I was like, oh, I just want to deepen my practice, you know? Mm -hmm. And the teacher at the time was like, (laughs) I remember like laser focusing in on me because she was like, oh, anytime anyone says that their life completely changes. And that was kind of the beginning of a very new chapter for me. And I think everything kind of came to a head once I was done with my yoga training. I had an option to keep on staying in corporate America or kind of take a leap of faith a little bit. And it so happened one of the teachers who I really connected to in the training was doing an advanced program in India. And I was like... I'm going to go do it, (laughs) you know? And so with the full expectation of coming back and getting a full-time job and going back and doing the whole media exec life, like, I don't think I knew in that moment how much of a shift was happening. Much like you, I was just very present in that moment with myself and was like, I'm just going to give it a go because that's what's calling to me in this moment. And, and nothing's ever been the same since. Back me up to Houston, Texas. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood that was a suburb outside of Houston. So a lot of people don't know this, but the second largest population of the Vietnamese community is in Houston. My family lived about 45 minutes away <laughs> from that right. community. So you were not a part of that. Yeah. Exactly. And and that's without traffic in Houston, as yeah. I always say. So <laughs> it was like me and probably four other Asian kids in the whole school. And there was a very visceral feeling of difference growing up. I think not until I had language or really understanding and doing some work myself later on, did I kind of really understand what that meant and how it expressed itself for me. Like at the time I was just a teenager trying to fit in. Right. Yeah. yeah, And looking back, the things that I was suppressing to feel like I could fit in more were all the parts of my Asian identity. So it was very much like, Oh yeah, I want to make sure I don't bring my lunch that my mom poured her heart into. Right. Because Mm. it might've made the other kids uncomfortable because it smelled a little different or like, you know, this piece I wrote recently for New York mag, I talked about, there was this other Vietnamese girl who was in the high school and she like came in a traditional dress. And I was like, why are you doing that? 
I didn't flip out at her, but internally I was like, oh my gosh, she's like pointing out the very thing that I'm trying to like keep under wrap. And so fast forward 20 plus years to now, I know the language behind that now, right? I know that as internalized racism, I know that as me working through my own shit of like, oh wow, there's actually why am I suppressing this or why did I and how can I just own it and be really proud of it and I think that's been my healing journey through the years and that's what I really want to share with people now right is that it's more than just the racism we experience but more so it's like how can we focus our attention on that healing's possible and that we can look at it and we can really go past that and be more than that. Everybody talks about being more than their trauma. This is no different than that. And so that's, that's much of what my work is centered on now. And I think so much about my adolescence these days in a way that I never thought I would, but it comes up constantly in the work that I do. What was the experience of being the daughter of Vietnamese war refugees? What kind of stuff does that stir up in the, in a house? How does that carry over? My parents' story is so big to give like headlines, right? My parents were both Southern Vietnamese, married. They had my sister four years before the fall of Saigon. So my dad had to scale up a gate and literally was dodging bullets trying to get into the hospital to make sure my mother could have my sister safely. The U.S. pulled out and then the whole country fell to communism. And my dad, who had been trained in the South Vietnamese military, like most of the men there at the time they had to be, there was like a a target on his back, right? Because they were going back and having him um, basically reassessed. And then there was even a bigger target on my parents' back because my mother's father was a senator for the South Vietnamese government. Uh, Not popular. Yeah, exactly. Right. Within like a month after my sister was born, they Mm. came and took everything from my parents' home. They literally took tables out from underneath them as they were eating. And they put my dad in a POW camp for two and a half Mm. years. I use the term POW because it is what it was, but it's really re-education camp. The men that were there go through a tremendous amount of mental and physical labor of this is how you need to be now. And there's almost like a brainwashing that is attempted. And as this was all happening, my mom was dealing with post-war Vietnam, trying to get my dad out. And with a newborn, can you imagine? Like, I can't even imagine, right? And on top of that, she had no income because my dad was the breadwinner at the time and her family had already migrated over to the States. And so my mom was also starving on top of that. I think one of the things that I absolutely find so profound and incredible about my parents' story is that so many women at the time had left their husbands to go to the States. I can't imagine, right? And that's no judgment or shame or anything on my behalf. But the fact that my mom was so resilient and was like, I'm not getting out of here without your dad. And like literally tracked him down, Ben, like tracked him down. 
managed to like convince all these Viet Cong officers to get him out and wow. paid them off yeah. and did all this stuff. Uh, right. So I share all that to say that those were my parents. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like I remember growing up and not really registering anything. And then I had this like senior year journalism project and uh, my professor was like, Hey, have you ever talked to your parents about their immigration experience and what their war experience was? And I was like, not really, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was yeah. just, you know, just a college kid and didn't really know much. And so I sat down and really heard their story from start to finish. And I think that was really the big turning point for me. One of the many big turning points of me stopping the shame that I would feel about being Asian and being like, oh my God, this is who I come from, right? Mm -hmm. And it also brought mass amounts of clarity to oh, certain sure. aspects of their yeah. parenting. My mom always is in a place where she doesn't feel exactly safe, right? And yeah. Is always constantly worried. I think that there's attachment to things because she lost everything. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, growing up, this is the most, like, basic one. My mom was like, you got to eat everything on your plate because, sure. like, yeah. you might not ever have that again. So those are very little ways in which it would show up. And I think it formed who I was as a person. I carry that on, you know, in ways that are both conscious and unconscious and lives in my body. And I think that was really apparent to me in the last sort of year or so. And all the API hate crimes have really started to increase. It just tapped into a level of paranoia for me, Ben, just to be yeah, vulnerable ben. that I was just like, whoa, where did this even come from? And I was like, oh, I know where it came from. It's in my genes on a cellular level that my body is trying to defend itself. One of the things too about intergenerational trauma is often we focus on the, only the trauma that's being inherited, but so much of my work too is also honoring the things that are good, right? That I got. Like, my mom's a fucking badass, right? Yeah, like, totally, totally, uh, totally. Yeah. You described her as strict earlier. And when I envision her fighting to get yeah. your dad, you can understand those two sides of that coin. Yeah. Intellectually, absolutely. but that doesn't mean emotionally that it's not like, ah, confounding and, ugh, moms. Totally. <laughs> yeah. It's like moms and you're like, oh, I love them. But like, here you go. And like, she's also like barely five feet. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like hilarious. You would just never think that. And there's this exercise I've done in, in quite a few retreats where you kind of list out what you get from your mom and what you get from your dad and like both mm -hmm. the bad and good. I'm putting in air quotes, but like, my mom's like the sort of fighter side of me, that persistence and, and, and stubbornness is also another way of interpreting yeah. that because my mom's such a big personality. My dad's so quiet. And it wasn't until I really started diving into my spiritual practice that I was like, oh, that's not a bad thing being quiet, yeah. you know? Yeah he really is such a Zen guy. And I think unless you like think about that conceptually or exposed to that, you don't really know that sometimes when you see yeah. someone who's that peaceful. And that's so inspiring to see that after everything he's been through too, for him to be able to access that in a 
very natural way of being. What was one of those first things you remember bumping into and, and managing your way through in such a manner that you could actually utilize what you learned to kind of power your next sets of steps? That's such a big question, Ben. It's inflection points, right? For whatever reason, this is coming up in this moment is when I first moved to New York. I didn't know anyone here. I applied to grad school at Columbia here less than 48 hours before the deadline. And it landed in my spam folder, my acceptance letter. (laughs) And I didn't (laughs) even know. And, you know, my mom didn't really get why I wanted to go to grad school. It was a very interesting dynamic. And I was like, I don't know, it's it's the best journalism school. So I should probably go check it out, you know? At this point, you'd done some great work from what I can tell at great places like the Houston Chronicle and you were hustling towards journalism. I was hustling hard. I really wanted to be a hardcore journal. And I kind of went from being a big fish in a little pond in Houston Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. came to New York and I was like, oh, fuck. It was a combination of feeling like suddenly I was with all these incredible people vying for the same internships and entry-level jobs. On top of that, really not having any stake in New York at all and not having a community, not having a network, not having any sense of home here. And at the time, this isn't the case so much anymore, but like there's barely any Vietnamese people anywhere, Ben. So like I was craving my mom's cooking. I was like missing all the things, you know, so that was tough. And I plowed through and had a really wonderful mentor, Cindy Stivers, who you might know just like from the journalism Uh, world, who uh started, uh you know, the digital time out in New York and is just a powerhouse. And I just knew after that, I'm never going to be able to get a job at the scale that I can get here. And just wound up staying because of that and kind of just hoping that it was the right call. And My parents were helping me pay for rent up here. It was like all the sort of normal New York things that happen when you first move. And I stuck it out and eventually landed at MTV. I can't imagine myself living or being anywhere else. New York's home now for me. How did you gut it out? What was your message to yourself as you Mm. stayed committed to trying to make your way? What was your practice? That's when I started really engaging with Buddhism for the first time. I grew up around it. My dad prayed every day. We had an altar growing up, but I didn't practice. I was just like, oh, that's just something my dad does before I go to school. (laughs) And so when I was like really looking for community, I found this temple right near Columbia and wound up just going every week after a while. And I think I just needed some form of community to help Mm -hmm, ground me so that whenever I was like, this isn't right. I got to go back to Texas. This is the wrong decision. I would just have those little moments of human connection that I really needed outside of just my like grad school bubble. I made some really great friends there, but I kind of needed something outside of that to make me be okay with being in New York. I realized Kim recently that that's kind of what I was doing here with this. Mm. It's like a forcing function to have conversations with people that you find interesting or that you care for or both in a time when the serendipity of that Mm -hmm. is so challenged. How'd you get there? 
I was actually working for the city of New York at the time. Incredible for city council. It's so wild. And the thing I love the most about that there was that I really loved digital. Like I was Mm -hmm. like excited about it to my bone. I was like, this is it. This is the way we have to tell stories from here on out. Mm -hmm. And you know how it was back then. It wasn't like not everybody was convinced, you know, and and that was at Viacom, right? Like imagine a local city government. (laughs) convincing right. people like we should tweet they're like what the fuck yeah. are you talking about yeah so yeah, they're like go write a policy or something your press but, release um, yeah, yeah totally exactly exactly and hand it out like in physical paper i was just like i really want to like give this a go and try to go to a place that really values it narrowed down my search a little bit and I saw this gig at MTV and I applied for it. It was to basically support from a social media level, just doing all the marketing for our linear. I remember showing up for my interview and all these people were like running down the hallway with like cupcakes and stuff. And I was like, this place seems fun. That's how I landed. It kind of was just a ragtag team at first. That first year was sort of my boot camp. You had big wig gigs at Discovery and TED, right? But something else was happening in parallel. You write, in 2015, you found your way to yoga and meditation to help you navigate one of the most challenging times of your life. What was happening? You know, because it sounds like, and I I can relate, which is why I ask. I had this experience where on the outside, I'm kind of crushing it as some kind of executive, right? But on the inside, I was like, and I only see it in retrospect, just crushing myself. And had my own stuff that kept me ratcheted up at a level of hypervigilance totally. that made the breaking news, global travel, like terrible decisions. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it interesting that these are the places that we end up? So, and I suspect that's possibly true for you too, that in retrospect, you're like, why would I be in the most high pressure set of seats mm-hmm. in the whole place that night? Because we were, we were in tough spots all the time. Totally. I don't mean to load the question, but what can you tell us about your transformation? during that time? I kind of look at my transformation in almost two chapters. I think of my first sort of chapter into spirituality and to my practice again, becoming sort of a regular practitioner of the 30 minutes of yoga every day, right? Mm -hmm. The inflection point there was that I went through a divorce. I was with someone for 12 years of my life. And when that sort of pivotal relationship leaves like yeah yeah, totally right and so it was like oh my god what's going on and I think it was really important to me at the time to to like not make it known at work brave face yeah yeah exactly so all of this was kind of internally going on and it was generally when I started doing you know some of the storytelling I could tell I I I shifted quite a bit during that Mm. time Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can only do my social justice storytelling. I think my heart needed that in that moment. And then once I kind of got through that first heart opening chapter, I went back into this media exec suit and right, was thinking right. I had figured it out from that first chapter, as we always do. And then I was yeah. like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. when it was like that same 
feeling the New York Times calls it an arrival fallacy. They wrote this big piece on it a couple of years ago. I was like climbing, climbing, climbing this corporate ladder. And I had goals that I had just put on myself, Ben, right? Like no one else. I was like, I'm going to be a VP by this age and I'm going to make this much money by this age. I was really close in making those goals and I made them. But then I got there and I was like, what is this all for? Right. I remember distinctly, there was one night we were in deep production for this daily show and I was burned out and working till three in the morning for like the fourth night in a row. I just was like, this is it. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't expect to be a a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher and start my own nonprofit. Like I just knew in that moment, this isn't working, right? And I need to stop the the harm that I'm doing to myself and potentially doing to other people because of how I'm showing up in the world. And so I was just like, yeah, I got to cut this shit out. And it was slowly from that moment that I was like, let me start taking care of myself. Let me see where that leads. And that's when my yoga practice started getting even more reached a new level. And, and when I decided to go into teacher training and do all the things. I just always remember that night because I think burnout is so real and it's so real in our virtual world that we live in. And with the pandemic, everyone is mentally exhausted, which by science means we are also physically exhausted. It's like your body screaming at you. And so I always tell people, if you're burned out, you got to stop what you're doing and just take stock of it and figure out what's causing all that pain for you. What did it sound or feel like that epiphany? How did that dissatisfaction manifest? I think quite literally it was the physical exhaustion. That scene that I just painted, right? Me in front of my laptop three in the morning, four nights in a row. Like, I've been there. Unshowered. Yeah, Yeah, we've been there together. Like, I think the thing that was the turning point for me was that I was leading this huge production team at the time. And I looked around and saw that they were also looking the way that I looked exhausted and tired often for me and for many people, I think sometimes you don't see it when it's just affecting you, but when it's mirrored back or it's projected forward, you can really see the decisions you're making. And I was like, yeah, this isn't okay anymore. Being able to see and witness that from another person's experience, I think helped me understand how not okay it was for me to be treating myself like that. And you had the power and it sounds like took the initiative to try and show a change. I don't know that I ever worked harder than those TV productions where you'd just be up for days and days and days and days and days, you know, touching the spirit world as I used to joke. But as I left Facebook, I got asked to lead a workshop that I called Managing Uncertainty. And it was really like a my personal interest poured into sort of the peer group to try and help each other through these early days of the of the pandemic. And one of the things I found yeah, so useful was understanding the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system and how we respond to danger and fear and anxiety and all these things. And just the simple epiphany that forget pandemic, but the simple epiphany that first I was walking around the real world with all kinds of fear and anxiety that meant mm-hmm. I was always in a heightened state, but yep. then you put this pandemic on top of it. What's your experience in 
what you do now with how people are moving through the world? How do people show up to engage? I think it ranges, obviously. When I started Ganesh Space, it was before the pandemic, like I mentioned earlier, and it was only in-person events, local to New York. And one of the things that was really amazing that we benefited from as an organization and community was that when we went virtual, suddenly folks from like rural Georgia found us. And it was really amazing. We talk about this all the time in the work that we do in the fact that everybody kind of shows up differently at a different intersection in their journey. And they have different levels of self-awareness. They have different parts of their healing. But ultimately, most folks show up in our space wanting community. That's why I started it. That's always been a theme. That's what I was looking for in New York when I initially moved, like I talked about earlier. They're looking for some sense of belonging and a better understanding of themselves. And so... I think depending on who it is and how they show up, they can be carrying a lot of trauma into the space. They can be really aware of their trauma or not at all. Yeah. We really try to meet people where they are and acknowledge that if they've never even heard of the parasympathetic nervous system, I doubt that they have the tools and the tactics to be able to stop and help push on that break a little bit more. It's been really important to me to let the community lead us into how we're serving them and what services we offer. What we've heard over and over again is we want to know more about the traditions that all of these different practices come from and not having it be really glossy and productized, but let's get into the root of it. And so that's been really beautiful to not only in my own practice to challenge myself to get to this sort of ancestral part of it, inviting in other teachers and learning from them and learning from their both personal and learned history Mm -hmm. of how these different spiritual practices come to be and how and why they want to share them. And then also like how the modern lens weaves in and out of that. I'm a big neuroscience nerd and love all that stuff. And for some of our other teachers, they're literally studying the angles within the body to help us show up as best as we can on our mat. It's just very interesting how everything kind of the sort of past and contemporary points of views come together in the way that we share the practices that we do. When you talk about mindful practice is the cornerstone to individual and collective healing, help us understand what that means to you. It's literally talking about having the conscious awareness in this present moment to know what is happening to you. That might sound really simple, but it's actually very, very hard and complicated, right? And so you might be thinking about mindfulness in a more traditional manner of meditation and yoga. And those are all ways in which we practice, but we can also be practicing mindfulness in conversation, the way we wash our dishes, the way that we drive our car, right? It's literally just the act of being conscious and present. I always emphasize that because I think people are like, ah, I'm not flexible. I can't do yoga. And it's like, (laughs) and I'm like, and I'm like, that's not the point. Like, that's not what we're trying to do, you know? When it comes to Ganesh space and the work that we do, it's really rooted on the foundation and the idea of interdependence. The fact that we all belong to each other. We all Mm. affect one another. 
and that we can't be free unless all of us are free. When we talk about individual healing, it's really doing exactly that. For us, our space is really looking at the intersection of social justice and mindfulness. And so often, whenever we see something awful in the world happen, we're like, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. I love the intention there. But often, so much is lost between the intention and impact. And sometimes harm can happen between that gap. And so what we really focus on is before you go make an action plan, before you go post a black square on Instagram, right? Like come and do the work and really look at what are the ways that you're still suffering? What are the ways that you're unconsciously aware of things and really being able to sit in discomfort around the issues that you might be talking about for the first time in your life. Mm -hmm. One thing that I always say, and I really believe is that it takes courage to do this work. It really does. We have a responsibility to do it, you know? And so our whole theory of change and, and, and our mission is rooted in the idea that if we want to show up as better humans in the world, if we really want to drive towards a world that's equitable and just and fair, then we have to raise our awareness at the core of it. And I believe that the best gateway and tool to do that is through mindfulness practice. Often people are like, how is breathing going to help me like, you know, show up better? And I'm like, if suddenly... You're doing a practice where you're listening to your body more. You're more attentive of your breath. You're suddenly starting to notice everything. Mm-hmm. And the things that you didn't notice before will suddenly come into your purview and your net of awareness. And when that happens, that first step is like, wow, sometimes even that is game changing. Like, think about if you've ever been in a fight with someone. And they've just acknowledged that they're wrong. Like having that awareness helps just disarm that conversation. And so it's one thing if you're fighting over chores or something with your spouse, it's a whole other thing when you're in a heated conversation or imagine if it's someone who really might have a power dynamic over someone else and could lead to violence. So being able to have that base and foundation of oh, I'm in a situation, what do I do? I go back to my breath, right? I go back to this tool that can ultimately help and stop harm in the world. What I hear you saying and what I've begun to experience myself is that when I've begun to cultivate an awareness, and the key here, right, is the practice. It's the discovery that I'm a constantly shifting vessel for my own experience, but if I don't pay attention to it, I won't know the shifts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the coming back to that then gives me a, like a leg up, not to make, I make it sound like it's all ROI oriented. <laughs> like, well, well, because I've invested this. What are the this KPIs fi- of this? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't mean to do that, but for me, it's useful to understand the benefit to something that's sort of abstract yeah, to your point of, of like, course. well, what good is breath going to do me? I feel like I was piloting without, any hands on the joystick. And now all of a sudden, I don't know if my hands are on the joystick, but at least I'm aware of the fact that I'm in a vessel moving really quickly. Once you start seeing that shift, you can't really go back. You talk about like having a leg up, but like you kind of do, to be honest with you, like there's suddenly 
this power, you talk about the freedom, there really is that freedom for you to have that choice of being like, am I going to get pissed at something Ben says, or am I going to choose to not do that? And like, it's really being able to kind of fight your fight or flight response and come back to this neutral ground, which I think is life-changing. It is incredibly life-changing because suddenly you have choice, you have power. And I think so much of the world we live in, particularly with the marginalized communities we predominantly serve, you don't feel like you have that in the systems that we live in, right? And so to be able to understand that there is some aspect of life that we can have that power and freedom, game changer. You know, it was for me anyways. We are all generally speaking kind of going around on autopilot. And I think that's the thing, right? When you see so much discomfort very frequently when someone's new to the practice, when I teach a lot of sort of beginner yoga and meditation and it's like people are wiggling about and they're like this is so hard and I don't want to do this and I was like yeah that's the point <laughs> right? yeah. like I think about this concentrated practice time that's your boot camp that's like you going to the gym prepping for a marathon you're not gonna suddenly start running the marathon you gotta train for it first and it just so happens that this mindfulness practice to me is training for life. Yeah. It's literally training for how you can be the person that you want to be in the world yeah. and understand that. When you think back to that girl in Houston, Texas, what would you want to tell her now? To not be so hard on yourself, you know, and that it's, it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out because it's through the courage and honesty of people like Kim, Kelly Ray, Sarah McBride, and Tim Madigan, who push through silence and shame to share their deepest vulnerabilities, that light is cast for the rest of us to find our way through our own darkness and uncertainty. All of them and so many of my friends and neighbors helpers have lent me the courage to speak my truth here on my last episode and shortly thereafter across a much, much broader swath of friends, neighbors, and colleagues on social media. Last Monday, I pushed publish on a Facebook post and Twitter thread on my own healing journey, then held my breath. Within seconds, a chorus of voices that eventually totaled well over 800 people rose up to say, me too. I feel that way also. Thank you. I've said it before and I'll surely say it again. When we can tell the truth about our insides, we give each other permission to do the same. And as Kim reminds us, we can't be free until all of us are free. It's easy, Fred Rogers once told us, to fall into the trap of believing that what we do is more important than what we are. Of course, It's the opposite that's true. What we are ultimately determines what we do. So go ahead, get free. It's all gonna work out. (laughs) 
Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Thank you.